The big guy. Good evening. Welcome to our Wednesday night Bible studies. Glad that you joined with us. Uh, all of you here in Green Bay, as well as over in Appleton, Stevens Point, those that are watching uh, at their home uh, Bible study groups, uh, as well as those who watch on the internet. We are in the book of Acts. We're actually going through the entire New Testament, starting with the book of Acts. It'll be quite the journey. It should be a lot of fun. We are in Acts, the uh, fifth chapter. Now, last week... <laughs> I had the wrong translation up in my computer dealie bob thing here. So I had the hardest time just reading the dumb thing. I thought, what is my problem? Bob says, you're in the wrong translation. You know, say something. I just sit there. Father, Father, you just send a text. Like, I got time to check text. You know, if my fly's wide open, if I'm on fire, something. You know, just, hey. <laughs> Wait till later. Slackers. <laughs> What's that? There was, yeah, I, no, I was lost. I was, he thought there was a point to it. Yeah, I was lost. And I pushed the wrong button. So we'll actually try reading the actual part that I'm used to reading that should match what's on the screens and most of your Bibles. What was that translation I had? English. English Standard Version. There's a few who have that Bible. And they were, hey, he's reading ours tonight. You know, put it away. That's the last time I read it. Okay, so. <laughs> so we're in the book of Acts. And uh, so, so far, this is, I mean, this is right at, they have just crucified Jesus. All the stuff that in the Gospels and all this happens. Uh, two months later, Jesus ascends into heaven. Uh, the Holy Spirit comes, and these guys are preaching everywhere, and miracles are happening, and the Bible points out a specific miracle of this guy who was sitting by the gate. Uh, he was crippled. He'd been there for decades. Undoubtedly, even Jesus probably must have passed him by. I mean, it's fascinating when you think about that, because you always assume that everybody got helped all the time. Apparently not. And uh, Peter comes up to him and pulls him up. <laughs> guy wouldn't even ask him for a miracle. <laughs> Here's one thing, you know, you really want a miracle? This guy, he isn't asking for Jack. He just wants some money. And Peter grabs him, pulls him up, and he starts walking. And immediately the guy can not only walk or, or, or strength in his legs and stuff, but he can walk. He's got total sense of balance and stuff, which is really amazing. Apparently, God could make it possible so that when you pop out of your mama's womb, you could get up and say, yo, what's up? And start walking around. I'm glad we don't do that, but apparently we can. God could, you know, when Adam and Eve, God made Adam and Eve, they didn't get up and have to have a hard time walking. They immediately could walk. Uh, God has the ability to make, to put you, boom, at any point that he wants you, which begs the question, well, why do I struggle so much? Because most of the time, that's what we do, intentionally. God, it's in our struggles and helping those little chubby-faced rascals learn how to walk and stuff. You bond with these creatures, <laughs> everybody. You know, you build a family and you're there for each other and you kiss the boo-boos and the owies as they stand up and fall and stand up and fall and stand up and fall and you eventually learn uh, life. And a lot of it's kind of like our own the faith walk. Couldn't the Lord just make everything absolutely clear in your head so you knew exactly everything about faith? Just like that. Yes, he could. Will he? Probably not. Why? Because you got to walk and fall and stumble and just, it is all part of the growing process, all right? So anyway, this incredible miracle, boom, this guy just immediately, he can jump, run, and everybody's just totally freaked out. Uh, the uh, leaders were just really upset about it, uh, particularly because when Peter would preach, he said, look, this Jesus that you guys crucified, again, this wasn't 2,000 years ago, this had just happened. You guys did this to him. But look what God did. God raised it from the dead, which was a huge rebuke to these people, especially to the leaders who orchestrated his crucifixion. But even these people that were listening to him, they were all in on this, you know, crucify him, crucify him, you know, and man, and all of a sudden, 
You know, they're preaching with power. They're, these people are feeling convicted. Thousands of people are becoming Christians. They start their own little kind of Christian commune. Everybody has every, they share everything. I think primarily because they were literally thought Jesus was coming right back. They had no idea that, that we'd still be here. <laughs> I'm glad they waited for us. But, uh, so anyway, all this stuff, and uh, they're doing all these miracles. Well, we pick it up in a chapter 5, verse 17. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, there were Pharisees and Sadducees. So uh, the uh, kind of like the little mini denominations uh, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection and spirits and all that kind of stuff. And I think they were a smaller group, clearly. But anyway, they were in cahoots with the high priest. They still had, they were part of the power structure there. Uh, and what motivates them, they're hearing what's happening. They're not being motivated by being convinced that what these guys are telling is the truth. They're motivated purely by jealousy because thousands of people are coming to these people. And all this stuff is happening, and Peter and these apostles are praying for people. They're getting healed. Uh, we just read that people would come from the cities. They'd bring their sick just to lay them in the streets, and hopefully Peter's shadow would pass over them. Because people, just a shadow would pass over them, they'd be healed. I mean, like, wow. So we pick it up verse 17. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. And they grabbed these guys. They arrest them. And they put them in the public jail. Uh, kind of like... Brown County Lockup or something like that. So it's not the major nasty prisons, and uh, it's not the prisons, as far as I understand, that were controlled by the Romans or anything. They had their own. You know, they had the temple guards and stuff. They weren't Roman soldiers, but they were allowed their own. You know, it's kind of like you get the federal government, you got local government. So they, they, they allowed them their own little local, you know, guards and, and whatever. So the local guards, the Jewish guards, grab them, throw them into their jail or whatever. But so I love this. I think this is hilarious. Verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. And he said, go stand in the temple courts and tell the people about all this new life. Now, they're skipping all, over all kinds of detail again. I've said this many, many times. People say, the Bible's just a bunch of stories. If it's stories, these are the worst storytellers on the face of the earth. I mean, they just hit the basic points. That's all. Now, Luke eventually starts giving us more detail. And by the time he shows up, he starts giving lots of detail. He's more into the telling, you know, what happened. But apparently, what had happened was, the, these guys are in jail. This angel shows up, opens the door, and all these guys are standing there. The guards and stuff, they don't see them. So they walk right past them. We'll find this a little bit later when he gives more details about one of one of the prison breaks that they did. Uh, anyway, the angels come right, but these guys don't see anything. I mean, how bizarre is that? You're walking past these guards, and they're just, and they don't see anything. It's like the guy just blinded their eyes. So they come out, and the angel says, I want you to go preach in, you know, the temple. Just keep doing what you're doing. So uh, at daybreak, they enter the courts, as they'd been told. That's what the angels told them to do, and they begin to teach the people. Well, the high priest and the associates arrived, and they called together the Sanhedrin, okay, everybody sit down, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and they sent to the jail for the apostles. We go get those guys. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. What is going on? How is this even possible? Then, while they're sitting there pondering about this, then someone comes and says, hey, look, the guys you put in the jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the t captain went with his officers and brought the apostles they didn't use force because they feared the people would stone them. And the apostles were brought in and made to stand before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. And then they asked them, this is how they said, they bring him in. And the first thing they say is, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Now, honestly, the first question I'd be asking is, how'd you get out of there? <laughs> right? I mean, that's a... 
We like it. I, you know, I mean, it's like they didn't, you know, they didn't even care. These people were so obsessed with stopping this teaching. This is the obvious stuff. And I promise you, uh, there are people who can be surrounded by all kinds of God events, and they're just clueless. They don't see Jack. They don't see anything. They're not noticing anything. Uh, and you've seen people like that. Maybe you were like that at one time in your life before you came to know Jesus. You're just like, you're just totally oblivious to what God is doing. And even in this case, again, <laughs> my first question is, how'd you get out of there? But they didn't even bother with that. So, so look, we told you not to teach in this name, yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and, which really ticked them off, are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Really? You mean you guys who killed him? Yes, you are guilty. Well, Peter and the apostles replied, listen, we got to obey God rather than human beings. Uh, this verse is often quoted in the King James vernacular where it says, we must obey God rather than man. And, uh, and that's the bottom line. Should we obey the laws of the land? Yes. Should we obey the police and all this? Yeah. But if there's a point where um, if the, they pass laws that go against your faith, you ignore the laws and, uh, and you do whatever. You know, we got the lady right now who's, uh, that, Kentucky or someplace like that, where she doesn't want to you know, issue these marriage licenses and stuff like that. Uh, and that's her argument. I have to obey God rather than man. And I can appreciate that. I, I, think, I think she's a little, a little nuts. Personally, if I were her pastor, I would not advise her. Just, re just resign. If it's against your faith, it's resign. It's like if you're at a, uh, you're a waitress and the boss says, listen, we're turning this into a topless place. You don't keep showing up and you're, you know, you just, you just you quit. You resign. She doesn't want to quit. You might as well make a deal. Okay. God bless her. But uh, anyway. But that, that, and you see her quoting that in these articles. She quotes that verse. I must obey God rather than man, which I can appreciate, and it's fine. I just think she's being ill-advised, but that's my own opinion. I've been known to have opinions. All right. So anyway, in this case, they told him not to preach or teach in the name of Jesus. This isn't just like about do something or whatever uh, that you can walk away from. You can't just walk away from. Here's the kind of law that you have to cease being who you are. You can't just... You know, it's not like a job or something. You have to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. We're in charge. That's the rule. No, they're saying. We, we're not going to listen to you. We have to do what God wants to do. The God of our ancestors, Peter said, raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree, on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. They kept sticking it right into these guys' faces. When they heard this, verse 33, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. Thankfully, we don't have a lot of that today. <laughs> but these guys, they wanted to kill everybody, you know? They listened to Jesus. They didn't like what Jesus We got to kill it, you know, the the apostles, oh, let's kill them. You know, it's like, wow, you need to relax. These people are just way too tense. Everybody's trying to kill everybody. But then there's a very famous uh, account that we're about to read here about Gamaliel. He's this really smart uh, teacher. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. He takes issue with what's going on. Um, they didn't all always agree 100%. We even read that, you know, Joseph, who came and asked for the body of Jesus, was part of the council who did not agree with what they had done to Jesus. Apparently, you know, clearly they were in the very small minority, and everybody prevailed. But this guy, he's trying to get him to stop. So he stood in the Sanhedrin. They, asked, they, they kicked the guys out of the room. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago... Theodos appeared, <laughs> sounds like Lord of the Rings, but that's a different Theodos, uh, claiming to be somebody. So this guy comes on, you guys remember, we don't know what they're talking about, 
we don't need to know what they're talking about. All they're talking about is their contemporary experience. So just a little while ago, there had been this guy named Thaedas, and uh, he was claiming to be somebody. And about 400 men rallied to him, and he was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it came to nothing. And then you guys remember Judas the Galilean, right? He appeared in the days of the census, and he led a band, not a rock band, but a band of crazy people in revolt. And uh, he too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. So therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail, which is what these other guys did. See, all these guys came along, they claimed to be something or somebody, and I don't know, they claimed to be sent by God or whatever, or inspired to, you know, in one case, revolt against the Romans, which they all hated the Romans big time. And these guys came, and they had all these flowers. As soon as the leader died, everybody was scattered. And... Uh, so they're talking about these two particular cases. So he says, listen, just leave me go. Uh, so if their purpose or activities of human origin, it will fail. Verse 39, but if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. And his speech persuaded them. Why? Because they didn't think it was God. They thought, You're right. These guys are nobody. There's nothing. They didn't believe. They did not believe in any way, shape, or form. And, uh, you know, he was a highly respected man, Gamaliel, and, and they decided, okay, well, well, you said let him go, so we'll let him go. Well, their version of letting go is <laughs> a little harsh. It says his speech persuaded them. Then they called the apostles in and had them flogged. And, uh, you know, <laughs> really, this is your version of let go? I mean, you know, just go. But no, they got to beat the snot out of them. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. Well, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus was the Messiah. Clearly, these people are watching this. They're listening to Gamaliel. They're thinking, all right, this is eventually going to come to nothing. The leader's dead. It'll get scattered. But they just kept getting stronger. In fact, the whole message of Christianity became way more powerful and way more amplified after Jesus had died and risen. And he said that would happen. He says, it's good for you. You need me to leave. It's better. Because if I don't leave, the Holy Spirit won't come. Why? I don't know. Who makes these rules? God makes these rules. So all we know is that when Jesus was there, the Holy Spirit was totally abiding on him. And he says, you know, let me go. So he goes, and then the Holy Spirit comes, and now there's like, you know, thousands of voices, eventually becomes millions and hundreds of millions, all over the world, and they just kept going everywhere, and the Holy Spirit was using everybody, and, and the message of Christianity became extremely amplified and powerful as God started using all of these people to touch the culture in which they live, the cultures in which they live. So, uh, so that's what they did. Um, they never stopped teaching, proclaiming the good news that Jesus was the Messiah. Okay, now chapter six. Now, remember, we got the hippie commune thing going. And everybody, you know, peace, man, praise the Lord, hallelujah, Jesus coming back. And they're all, they're just, you know, I don't know what they're doing. They're selling stuff and living off the proceeds and just one big happy family. Well, it doesn't take long before they start getting on each other's nerves. Can't imagine. But uh, that's what happens, you know. Weren't they Christians? Of course they were Christians. Weren't they loving each other? Well, yeah, they're loving each other. Then why are they getting on each other's nerves? Because we're people. It's what we do, all right? It's just, you know, people say, Pastor, I really love you. That's because you don't know me that well. If you spent lots of time with me, I would start irritating you. I promise you. Ask my wife. So, you know, somebody, you know, it's just, it's just people. It's just we kind of get on each other's nerves and... You know, if we all lived in one big happy commune, it wouldn't take long before, you know, stuff would act, you know, act up and people would start going off on each other. Well, they started having problems. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say with the women, but it wasn't the women. <laughs> Don't throw anything. It wasn't the, it was that they were fighting. Oh, let me just read it. <laughs> In those days, when the numbers of disciples were increasing, thousands of people, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows, there's the ladies, were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. It's not fair. The, the Hellenistic Jews were Greek-speaking Jews. These guys spoke Greek. They're all Jews. 
but they're Greek-speaking Jews. And then you got the Hebrew-speaking Jews, and the ladies felt it wasn't fair because these ladies are getting more food than the other ladies, and, you know, and they're arguing because something's not fair. That's what it was. Was there anything going unfair? Who knows? This is people are people. And everybody gets amplified and all crazy about something, and they're all going nuts. So they're arguing with each other. And you have to remember, this is during a time where people are really hypersensitive, not just about race, but just what side of the street you came from, you know. Uh, people say, you know, America's still racist. Really? You should have been, you obviously don't remember the America I grew up in. Because that was some serious racism. You think that was? You should have seen my grandparents' world. Every not, <laughs> even my mother was out of control at times. <laughs> these these people were raised with not just race, but uh, um, in terms of white or black, but just culture. You know, are you Polish? Or are you German? Are you Irish? Remember, there used to be signs in, in this country, no, no Irish need apply. Because they just hated the Irish people. Why? I don't know. Everybody hates somebody. So they hated the Irish. They hated this. And they had all these things. Everybody was hyper. And not only were they hyper about that, they were hyper just about what side of the town you lived on. And you guys remember this stuff? You know, there's still a little bit of that in Green Bay. You know? Seriously. People from the west side can't comprehend coming to the east side, a lot of these people. It's like, why don't you come over? Well, that's over on the east side. Like, they got to get a passport or something to cross the river. <laughs> Seriously? But there's some hardcore, you guys know, you've all met these people, they won't cross the river. Because, well, oh, that's, that's on the other side of the river. I, I don't think there's oxygen over there. You know, I, I don't know what they're thinking. Like, seriously, but they tend to be older people, and that's just the way they think, and it's, you know, and what side of the street you're on, and, and then not only that, just your family name. People were obsessed with family names, because that's why people were so obsessed about protecting their family name, because if one person in the family went nutsoid and did something, well, the whole family couldn't advance in this community. You know, it's like if one of the Gustafsons went crazy and stuff. <laughs> Started strangling all the cats in the neighborhood. I don't know. Then, then, then we would know. I'd say, what's, what's, what's your name? Bob. Yeah, what's your last name? Augustus said, oh, one of those Augustus. <laughs> you guys remember this? I mean, this is what it was like. Some of you, a lot of you guys are too young, but some of you geezers like me, it was the name and, and this and the, everybody was cyber. And people today say, well, there's still a lot of racism. Really? You know, I really don't think it's so much about racism today. I think it's more about culture. You've got inner city culture, and you've got other parts of culture, and they're all going at each other and, and stuff like that. And it's not like it used to be, I promise you. Uh, I, <laughs> I remember Debbie's grandma was really upset because she was dating me. And she said, well, can't you date one of your own kind? <laughs> and Debbie thought, you mean another girl? You know, and then it dawned, you know, I wasn't German. You want me to marry a German guy? Well, yeah, of course. You know, just, just. <laughs> of course, you know, I'm a little darker, and, and that's when I had hair. And, you know, it was furry and whatever, curly. And I remember when I first walked in the house, she reached over, and she just uh, patted my head. I want to touch it. Well, these people were nuts, okay? But everybody was like this. And that was just 50 years ago, for heaven's sakes. Beyond that, but our whole—if you read the stories of America, America was very hyper about that. I have uh, in my little Puerto Rican hands these, this uh, book that uh, Rob Moore, our, our financial guy, has in his office. I stole it from there. I'll put it back. But uh, it's a 1941 manual, the official National Football League roster and record manual for the NFL, 1941. And there's just a handful of teams, you know. You have the Cleveland Rams, you know, the Chicago Cardinals, you know, the Chicago Bears are still there. And, uh, but, but I want you to check this out. This, now, this was the official record that they had in the NFL. It would start with your name, what position you held, uh, how high, tall you were, what your weight was, what school. I mean, we still talk about that, you know. I'm so-and-so from such-and-such such university. 
uh, uh, what season you were in the thing, where you lived. They want to know where you lived. Well, they don't put that anymore. They want, well, exactly what town do you live in? Because they would look at the way, you know, the, way the town, uh, and then the nationality. All of this is listed. Here's a Lithuanian, Irish, German, uh, Slovakian, Scot-Irish. Those are really mean people, you know. The Italians, Irish, uh, French, English, Norwegian, Polish, Croatian, Ukrainian. Uh, I mean, you, you'd start riots if you did that kind of stuff today. But this is the way it was. We want to know, you know, who are you? Where are you from? What's your family name? Where do you live? And what nationality are you? Well, we're all Americans, but not 1941. People were very hyper about all this stuff. And this was just the standard uh, thing that they had. Also had, they wanted to know if you were married or single. As you can see who's single and who's married here. <laughs> very funny. And then what your off-season job was which back then, you know, they, they didn't get paid much and they had to sell jobs, so we got student, coaching, policeman, insurance broker, <laughs> rancher. Plain plant police. I don't know what that means. Uh, anyway, all these, are, here's a pilot. So, any funny. So, this is the, the kind of world that we live in today that they really push all this down, which personally... I appreciate that we don't have that hyper crazy stuff. I grew up in part of it, you know, you grew up in part of it. Where I came from in Nielsville, Wisconsin, they used to call us bush niggers. Yeah. And they try and beat us up. And we didn't know why. Why they hate us? Well, it wasn't until we actually left Nielsville, thank God. And, uh, and uh, I don't know if anyone from Nielsville is watching. But, uh, and then, and then it started dawning on us, well, it's because of the way we looked. I was probably in my 20s before I started dawning. They hated us because of the way we looked, because I started meeting other people for, you know, stuff. it was just bizarre. They were mean, nasty, and they would hate you just because your hair wasn't the right, you know, blonde hair, blue eyes, stuff like that. Anyway, this kind of stuff has been hardwired in people for thousands and thousands of years. And these Christians devout Christians, miracle experienced Christians were having problems with it already. They were all Jews. It wasn't nationality. They were mad because one spoke Greek and the other one spoke Hebrew and they felt things weren't fair and they started fighting with each other. All right. So the 12 disciples got together and they gathered, the 12 apostles and gathered all the disciples together and said, Guys, it, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in, other to, in order to wait on tables. Now, that's probably a little insulting to these people, but that's what they're, you know, really, this is what you're fighting about. You want us to stop doing what we're doing so we come and figure out who's getting the right amount of uh, food for, for the widows. So he says this, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. And we will turn this responsibility over to them. And we will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So what they decided was that they installed what uh, we call deacons. And these were people who basically did the stuff that the apostles didn't want to do or felt that it would distract them from their ministry. Um, some churches still have deacons today. We've talked about maybe having an office like that, but it's, it's kind of hard to define in a sense. Uh, Bob's a deacon, you know, because he actually deals with the administration of the church. I do not. As I travel around the world, people always say to me, man, how do, how do you be a pastor of church and still travel and preach and stuff like that? How do you do all that? Because like, I don't do all that. I got people who do all that. You know, people, and just... I delegate it out, so I'm not dealing with, and I promise, you don't want me dealing with where people are meeting in different parts of the church and stuff like that. You know, actually, I, had to be, I got to the point, I just tell people, don't ask me anything, because I'll always agree. Right? And I cause problems, because, hey, Pastor Mark, we'll be okay if we poured gasoline on the children. And I go, 
yeah, okay. You know, so they be poor. Why are you doing it? Well, Pastor Mark is not a good. Our guys no, now know that when they say Pastor Mark, ah, ah. Number one, that probably didn't happen or he had no idea what you were talking about. So I just try to avoid and I just, you know, most of you who ask me for stuff, if you notice, I send you to Bob or to Lathan or to Pastor Joe or someone, someone else to deal because I don't know. I don't want to know. Not that I don't care. I'm sure it's all extremely important at some level to somebody, but I just stay away because I can't keep it all straight in my head. You don't want me organizing this place. <laughs> I have a hard time organizing me, all right? I spend the focus of my time on what I'm going to say and how I'm going to teach and all, this, all that kind of stuff. I'm no apostle or whatever, but I'm just saying that's, that's what I do. So they put these guys in charge uh, to do this stuff. They were the first deacons. And again, some churches have guys who they do call deacons. And deacons, it's actually it's the only... Uh, um, office, if you will, of power and significance in the church that were also run by women. You know, when it came to, you know, the ultimate leader of the church, those were always men. Don't yell at me. That's what they did. Uh, but women were allowed to be deaconesses. And the Bible talks about We'll read that as we go along. You'll hear about some of these women. They were some of the movers and shakers in the church, and they helped to make things happen, and, uh, which, again, was extremely, extremely radical. Christianity was the first group that ever came along and lifted women. Everybody always ignored women, pushed them down. Christianity was the one that started tearing down that wall. People today try to accuse Christians of oppressing women. You know, seriously, you know, it's, uh, this was oppressive. Look at some of the other religions in the world. They're extremely oppressive. They don't let women drive cars or become educators. Like that. Christianity is the one group that was totally different from that. So anyway, they start out with the first group of deacons. These guys were all men, but then eventually started including women. So they said, get some guys to run this because we don't want to deal with this. And the proposal pleased the whole group, and they chose Stephen. You're going to, Stephen we're going to talk about in just a minute. Stephen is the first martyr in Christianity. He was a man of, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. There was also Philip. We'll run across Philip again a little bit later into the uh, New Testament. He had some... <laughs> Wild, crazy experiences, Star Trek kind of stuff. It's hilarious. Uh, Procurus, I have no idea who he was. Nacanor, I don't know. Timon, I don't know. Parmenes, I suppose if I studied real hard, I can figure it out. I don't really care. Uh, and then we got to Nicholas uh, from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. Now, in the book of Revelation, when we get to the book of Revelation, there was the, teach the, the one thing Jesus said, I hate. And it's the only place I think you can find where the Bible where it ever says Jesus hated anything. He says, I hate the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And many people believe it was from this Nicholas who became this, he was this deacon, he was a major player in the early church, but then he goes nuts and he starts advocating all kinds of crazy stuff that's against biblical doctrine and immorality. He thought everybody should just be immoral. The more you have sex with people, the closer you are to God. I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff that he taught and uh, it was very destructive and it became a whole movement, just, you know, he just went nuts. I don't know what his deal was, but that's what happened to him. So anyway, that's Nicholas. So they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. Everything got settled down. The apostles weren't trying to do everything, and really the apostles shouldn't try to do everything. I would argue in most churches, the pastor really shouldn't try to do everything. Try to delegate as much as they can. Now in small churches, there's nobody to delegate to, so they wind up doing too much, but I think even in those cases, even the small churches, it kind of just sucks the life out of these pastors, and they burn out because they're, they're trying to do and organize and be everybody, everything to everybody. It's just a bad idea. Uh, <clears throat> learn to empower other people. Let them do things. Uh, that's hard for <clears throat> some pastors. I've, I've known pastors who are just serious, crazy micromanagers. They... <laughs> They want a meeting about everything, and they want to make a decision about everything, and they got to go through it. It's just, oh, I don't have the energy. I don't know why they want to do all that stuff. But uh, uh, in this case, they had other people. They brought them, empowered them, let them make decisions, dealing with day-to-day -day stuff while the head guys focused on the ministry. So the word of God spread. The number of the disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. It was already increasing rapidly. And a large number of priests 
became obedient to the faith. So that's got to be pretty radical. Now we've got priests who are now becoming Christians, and more and more people are Christians. And, uh, you know, it was really shaking up the lives and the world of these Pharisees and stuff and this Sanhedrin, all these people. But more and more people are becoming devout Christians. They were still considered Jews, though, and they didn't really have... One of the things that will really stand out as we start looking at this, when they preached, um, at times they'd get really mad at him. They're about to get really mad at Stephen and stone him to death. Uh, But by and large, uh, when they got to the point where they started preaching about Jesus being the Messiah, they didn't really react too harshly to that. Uh, That started really becoming a, a clear argument. All Christians in the beginning were all Jewish. People talk about Christianity and Judaism and Jews aren't Christians and Christians aren't Jews. That's not how it started out. They were all Jewish. Uh, Christianity was like another version of, you got the Pharisees, you got the Sadducees, and you got the Christians. They were literally considered a Jewish sect, a Jewish denomination, if you will. They still uh, practiced Judaism. They were still faithful to the Old Testament laws and the rituals and all that kind of stuff, but they celebrated Jesus as the Messiah. So, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Now, here's the interesting thing. Uh, because now, uh, up to this point, it's the apostles doing all this stuff. Well, now we see guys who are not apostles. This guy's a deacon. He's a lower-level cat, and he's doing miracles. The reason why this is important is that a lot of people try to limit uh, the miracles to just the apostles, and that's why they try to argue there shouldn't be any more miracles today. They've got other arguments, which we'll eventually get to. Uh, but I just, I just think they're wrong. I think God still does miracles today. I do believe there were some unique things about the apostles and the power they had to help establish the credibility that they were apostles and stuff. But uh, the power of God never has been limited to the leaders. You know, it's, it's available to everybody and anybody. Man, if you got enough faith, and that's when we'll read later when we get into the book of Corinthians about the gifts of the Spirit and working of miracles and speaking in tongues, all these different gifts of the Spirit, that's going everywhere in the church. Just that dancing hand of God was everywhere. You wanted to experience God, you connected with people in the church. It didn't have to be about connecting with some guy. All right, so Stephen, he's doing uh, signs. Verse 9, opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. Again, hardcore, who are you from? Where are you from? Why are you from that side? So now we got these versions of Jews uh, from Cyrene and Alexandria and these provinces. And so they, everybody had kind of like clicks. You know, it's kind of like high school. You know, these people just never seem to get past that. Everybody had their cliques of who they knew and, and all that kind of stuff and the people they grew up around and spoke the same language. So they get in this big argument with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Well, that's what they said he said, but he never said it. Those were lies. Uh, they start accusing him of saying things that they didn't say. Uh, people still do that to this day. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen, brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. It wasn't true. That's not what he had been saying. But that's what they said, he said. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. And they're staring at this guy. And the boy is just glowing. The presence of God is on him. And the Bible says, they looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Verse 15. Isn't that amazing? They're looking at this. And what is it with this guy? So he's just basking in the presence of God, man. He's just, you know, and they're saying all this stuff. And he's just, just letting the presence of God shine on him. Because remember what Jesus said. When they drag you in front of these leaders, don't think about what you're going to say. Now, we don't have to think about this because we don't get arrested for our faith and stuff like that. But if the time ever comes, God forbid, that we start getting arrested and, and, and we got to go to court and all this kind of stuff, and you, you shouldn't be thinking, oh, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? No, no, no. Jesus, don't think about what you're going to say. 
When you get up there, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. So they knew this. That's what they'd been taught. So they're just letting him rant and rave. He just, because he knows God's going to show up and give him the right words to speak. All right. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? And uh, that gives him the opportunity to start speaking. And he could have said yes or no, but he didn't. He goes into this sermon. Uh, So he said, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. So he literally goes back. He does a sermon here. He goes back and it starts in the Old Testament. And he starts reminding everybody as Jews where we came from and whatever. Let me just read through this. Uh, God comes to him, verse 3, and says, leave your country. That's what he said to Abraham and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way, for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated, talking about when they went to uh, Egypt. But I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves. God said, and afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs who became the 12 tribes of Israel. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his pal. Why he's saying all this, I don't know. But that's what he's basically telling them everything they know already. But maybe, it's, you know, that's those words God gave them. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was no grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. It's all the story of Joseph. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father, Jacob, and the whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem, then placed in a tomb, the tomb that Abraham had brought uh, from the sons of Hamar at Shechem. (laughs) For a certain amount sum of money. I don't know why he's saying all this. As the time drew near... For God to fulfill the promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Man, they were breeding like rabbits, man. They were popping babies out all over the place. Then a new king, whom Joseph uh, meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Well, he dealt treacherously, treacherously with our people, oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. Now he's up to the time of Moses, the story of Moses. At that time, Moses was born. He was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. You know, that's when he put him in the little basket and floated him down the river, and Pharaoh's daughter found him. So he's raised as Pharaoh's son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Uh, Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. And the next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. Why is he living the whole Bible here? He tries to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside. Who made you rule and judge over us? You think about killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And Moses heard this and he freaks because he found out he's got busted. They saw me. I, he thought nobody saw him. Remember the Killed him and buried him under the sand. Apparently somebody was checking out with him. But he'd been, he was 40 years old by the time this happened, by the way. You know, you read, you, you see these movies or <laughs> the cartoon versions of whatever. And, you know, Moses is a young man in Egypt when all this stuff happened. He was 40 years old before this happened. He was totally Egyptian. He was around Egypt. He was raised by Egypt. He woke like an Egyptian. Everything about him was Egypt, but yet he knew where he came from. We don't know how he knew, but he knew. He went to help. You guys know the story. Why am I telling you what I just told you. Uh, 
So anyway, after 40 years had passed, so another 40 years, the guy's 80 years old, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. You think your life's moving slow. <laughs> Relax, all right? I don't know who I am. How old are you? 28. Relax. All right? Some of us are late bloomers. <laughs> Moses was a very late bloomer. 80 years old. And he's still, he's, running, he's out in the middle of nowhere feeding goats. <laughs> Every day. All right? And uh, I'm not sure that's a good goat impersonation. But. So anyway, he sees this burning bush. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I'm the God of your father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals for the place you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses that had rejected, they, they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? Well, he sent them to be the ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to them in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt and the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. So 40 years, he's an Egyptian. 40 years, he's feeding goats. And then he brings the people out. And then for 40 years, they're in the wilderness. This guy's really got a thing with 40s. And, and then by the time they went into the promised land, he didn't go in. <laughs> he just died because he's old. So this is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. Okay, so he goes through all this to remind them of everything they know already, but then points out to them, Moses said God would send somebody. And this points them back to the idea of the Messiah. Again, something they all understood and agreed with. And Moses said, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with an angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who's led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. You guys all know the story, right? They're all belly aching. God finally sets them free, brings them out, they're in the wilderness, and now they're freaking out because they're in the wilderness and they want to go back. For some reason, there's something that just pulls people sometimes to want to go back to their old life. The same is true today. People who become Christians, sometimes not too long before they start wanting to be pulled back to the familiar that they know, even though it was very destructive to them. People are crazy. I don't know what it is. Uh, so they said, you know, make, make us a god of Egypt. So they make that golden calf. They brought sacrifices to it and revealed in what their own hands had made. Verse 42, but God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephim, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Holy cow. He's quoting this. He has all this memorized, you know, these verses. Uh, our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law. With, I'm sorry, this is really boring. <laughs> we said we're going to go through it. I'm going as fast as I can. Our ancestors had, ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. And it remained in the land until the time of David who enjoyed God's favor and asked what he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built out. He's literally going through the whole Old Testament in, in one time. This has got to be a long sermon. You know, and then they eventually kill him, you know, because, <laughs> you know, I'd be saying, dude, I want to kill you, okay? <laughs> Shut up. But he's going on. So he talks about Solomon who built the temple. How are we doing for, I'm out of time. Good grief. I can't even get through all this. Let me just get a few more verses here. So Solomon builds the temple. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands, as the prophet said. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people. Now he's getting to it. All right? Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resisted the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors didn't persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. 
who have received the law and was given through angels but not obeyed. What is that? That's kind of a strange jump there. Anyway, so uh, he gets to it and he goes through all this stuff and all the history of the Old Testament and all this and he says, but you guys, you blew it and you crucified the Messiah. And, and then we will read their response. Well, now let's keep going. We're almost done. A few more verses. I don't want to do this again later. <laughs> when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. I don't know what that means. <laughs> what does that mean, gnashing your teeth? It's not gnashing your teeth at me. I'm calling the people in the white jackets. <laughs> So but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this, they covered their ears. Ah! They don't even want to hear it. They are insane with anger. And now he's saying he can see Jesus next to God. I mean, they went ballistic. And they rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul, who eventually becomes Paul the Apostle. So we'll stop there. Oh, no, no, let me finish up. One more verse. Two more verses. <laughs> Two more verses. Almost done. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell out on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Uh, when he had said this, he fell asleep, which means he died. So... He preaches this extremely long, tedious sermon uh, and points out that they were part of these stubborn leaders who always were fighting against God. And they knew the history. And he says, you're just like them. You're the guys who killed the Messiah. And they got so mad. And they just they run and gnashing their teeth, going crazy. They're stoning him to death. And the guy who uh, they are acknowledging who's in charge of all of this killing at this point is Saul. And Saul is the one, and then we're going to start reading about Saul and how he uh, eventually becomes uh, a Christian, and it's really rather fascinating. It really, all of this stuff is clearly, clearly very fascinating. And it start, this starts now when the church starts to get persecuted, and they scatter all over the place, and Christianity starts to spread. All right, so next week, we'll pick it up right there and uh, continue the account. There's a few times uh, in the book of Acts where they do this, where they will record word for word their little sermons that they preach. And it's a little painful. Uh, but we'll do it. We'll just go through it. I'll read it as fast as I can. Hopefully you could even understand me. Uh, if not, you can read it on your own. They're literally, and these other guys, they, they like to preach these sermons. Apparently that was the style of the day with the Jews. They get together and they would rehearse Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all this to finally get to their point. He got to this point and they killed him. So, all right. All right, God bless you. See you Sunday.